we can pull this off, John, this episode might be much heavier on the smart than on the drivel. I came across a story that is chilling. Paul Revere didn't even finish his ride before being caught by the British. Fortunately, the president didn't need to read those words. Closest to the North Pole first. Can you imagine having to make that decision? Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, Kurt. Is that you? Yes, it is. It's Kurt Schneider, your co-host from Smart Drivel. Hello, Kurt. I'm John Ellenthal. I also am a co-host from Smart Drivel. So we must be in the right place at the right time. What are the odds? Well, I don't know how to calculate those, but I think they're pretty good. It is another episode of Smart Drivel where we promise the drivel and hope for the smart. And if we can pull this off, John, this episode might be much heavier on the smart than on the drivel. If we can pull this off, I want to underscore if. So this is a great topic. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to talk about people who made a really important contribution, was responsible either in whole or in part for a critical achievement, but for a variety of reasons, oftentimes circumstantial, they have been forgotten by history. So we're going to talk about completely forgotten heroes. And at least for a little while, Kurt, they will not be forgotten. I would like you to go first because you are a very well-known and not forgotten co-host of Smart Drivel. And not surprisingly, when I was researching this topic, because I really enjoyed it, most of the people I found were female and or African-American. So unsung heroes. Well, you know, when you talk about circumstances that kept them from being remembered more prominently by history, unfortunately, racism and sexism were a couple of those circumstances that led to them being forgotten in the ways they have. But let's start to remedy that right now, Kurt. All right. Well, I'm going to start with a young girl, and she was a girl because she was only 16, by the name of Sybil Luddington. She was only 16 when she did her thing that made her famous or should have. Okay. Forget Paul Revere, John. Paul Revere didn't even finish his ride before being caught by the British. I did not know that. He only made it 20 miles, and he wasn't yelling because they were trying to be quiet. But Longfellow wrote a great poem about him, and there you go. So Sybil Luddington lived in Connecticut, and she is the real deal. She was 16 years old, and one night, riding side saddle, right, as the women were supposed to do back then or, or thought to do, and all by herself in the rain for 40 miles, twice what Revere did, she rode to alert her father's troops that they had to be ready to fight the British at Danbury, Connecticut. She fought off a highwayman on the way who was trying to get her. She kept riding through the rain. She had a stick that would bang on the door. She finally got to her father and others. And because of her, the colonists were ready and chased the British out of Connecticut. So why is it that I mean, I guess the Longfellow poem is what elevated Revere to near fictional status, since it was fictional, as it turned out. But what kept Luddington from being more well-known? I don't know. Maybe because this was just one of many battles that was being fought. Maybe it was because she was a 16-year-old girl, and at the time, they didn't want to fet that. I do not know. Yeah, it's amazing. There are these people who are on the edge of such an important event, contributed to such an important event, 
but it, it really seems random which ones go down in our folklore and our right. history. They get taught and it's a form of immortality. And while I'm sure they didn't do it so that they could be remembered for generations and centuries, it just seems kind of random. I would like to follow up on Luddington with an example of this discussion that I think is the quintessential category definer for this topic. I think we would quickly agree that one of the greatest technological achievements of our lifetime was Apollo 11 landed on the moon. We know from previous episodes how much you loved that as a kid and how obsessed you've been with it. I mean, it's, it captures our imagination, whether it's exploring, pushing our boundaries, imagination, the advances of science, just really what man is capable of, extraordinary things. And sure, it was, we know how it turned out now, but going into it, both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin thought they had a 50-50 chance of never getting back off the moon and rendezvousing with the command module and making it safely back to Earth. Yeah. In fact, the president had even written a speech in the tragic circumstance where the eagle just got stuck on the surface of the moon and Aldrin and Armstrong would be left there to die. In fact, it's beautiful language. The brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know there's no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. Fortunately, the president didn't need to read those words because the eagle was able to get off the moon and rejoin with Columbia, which was the command module. And because of the risk they took and being the first and second men to ever walk on the surface of the moon, most people know Neil Armstrong, at least, and a lot of people know Buzz Aldrin as well. But there was a third member of the Apollo 11 crew. He was the astronaut who was flying the command module while the Eagle landed on the moon. And he is literally the forgotten astronaut. I think if you ask most people who was the third astronaut, you'd get blank stares and a bunch of I don't knows. Yeah. His name is Michael Collins. And he was part of one of the greatest voyages of mankind, history of mankind. And he is the forgotten member of the trio. Did he pick the short straw? Why, or was he better at flying than them? Why was he out there and they got to go? You know, they all had very specific roles. And I think he was the one that was most qualified to fly Columbia. I think it was his second trip. I think he was a part of Gemini 10, where he also flew. So I think his job was to fly the big thing, while the other two had very different jobs. And that gets decided by whomever makes those decisions. And they obviously were just carrying out their duty. And they were part of a mind-bogglingly important moment. But Michael Collins, a name that I'm afraid has already been lost to history. Yeah. Is he still alive? He is. He's a very old man. I don't think he looks back on it with any, I got screwed because he was a part of something extraordinary. I think when you think about the Smart Drivel podcast in years from now, I think there's a real chance that people are going to remember John Ellenthal as the host. And Kurt, who made critical contributions, may just be forgotten. And that yeah, would be well, really circumstantial. I hope it doesn't keep you up at night, Kurt. Give me another, Kurt. I have an insatiable appetite for this topic. Well... This woman was the 19th century Rosa Parks. Oh. 19th century. So, ergo, 100 years beforehand. Hang on. We didn't have buses in the 19th century. Ah, but we had stagecoaches that horses oh. were drawn. And in New York City in the 1850s, 
All of these were private. It wasn't part of the government. It wasn't like the IRT subway. And anyone could be refused service at any time because they were private. Well, this woman, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, on July 16, 1854, was late to church. It was a Sunday. And so she boarded a streetcar. The conductor ordered her off. She refused and physically struggled. And she tried to stay on before police finally came on by force and carted her off. Her story went national because she talked to everyone about this and it inspired others. But more than that, she sued the driver and the Third Avenue rail car. Her lawyer, by the way, was Chester A. Arthur. Oh, really? Who became president of the United States later on. Yes, Yes, he did. She won the case. So Chester must have been pretty good as a lawyer as well as a politician. And the court declared that African-Americans have the same rights as others. And by 1861, New York City transit system was desegregated as a result. Elizabeth Jennings Graham. We know Rosa Parks. We don't know Elizabeth Jennings Graham. Maybe because Rosa Parks is a more modern version of the parallel story. And that's just, you know, there's a recency bias on that. Just think how many people who probably did something similar. And for whatever reason, it didn't capture the public imagination. It didn't get recorded in history in a certain way. It's weird. But there is this concept of updating. There's this struggle against an oppressive and unfair and unjust power. And that story has been repeated through history. And I don't think it's weird that a more recent version of that story is the one that we're running around with. Thank you for returning her to her rightful place as American hero. Yes. I would like to hear who you have next, because This is, again, not us opining about when we were young, but to learn something. And I want to learn. This is a little bit of an offbeat approach for you and I. So, Uh but the topic, the topic is totally worth it. I came across a story that is chilling when you consider the potential negative ramifications of what could have happened. I guess that would be the potential part, what could have happened. So forgive my redundancy. And I don't know this story. I do now, but I did not know this story. And I did not know the man's name who was responsible for making a decision that literally saved hundreds of millions of lives during our lifetime. Do tell. I want to know. Did I tease that sufficiently? Yeah, this guy might. I bet you he'll make your list for the next dinner party because you like those people that save millions and billions. Well, yeah, including you and me in this case and many of our listeners who were alive in 1983. 1983. 1983. You and I were alive. We had just graduated from high school and started college. And our lives could have come to a screeching and horrible halt at that point, thanks to a nuclear holocaust that was narrowly prevented. This guy, his name is Stanislav Petrov, is in the Soviet Union military command. With a name like that, I would assume so. Yes, although I'm sure we have Americans named Stanislav Petrov. And actually, they changed their names to like Stanley Peters or something. But anyway, The Soviet Union has a pretty sophisticated missile detection system because nuclear weapons and nuclear war were a hot topic at that point, and the rhetoric from the American presidency for several presidencies had been pretty stern. And Reagan was talking about his, what got mockingly referred to as Star Wars. But there's a missile defense system, and the early warning system went off. And it meaning what? Means it detected incoming ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles from America targeted at 
the Soviet Union. Wasn't this the same year that the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick came out? It was around that same time, but I don't know if it was a coincidental or not. However, I think there are probably a lot of stories that are kept from public consumption where they were narrow misses. And when you have tools of such potential devastation, anyway, so the system goes off, says there is an incoming intercontinental ballistic missile from the U.S. to Soviet Union. And the system screams launch. Yeah. And it was given a high reliability rating, according to the system. And I think the way their system worked, what I understand is once several missiles have been detected incoming, like five, the Soviet Union goes into its full retaliation mode, where we're talking about nuclear holocaust. So the system goes off and Stanislav Petrov has to make a decision. Does he inform command? who will then launch a retaliation that would kill an extraordinary number of people, or did he not? And for reasons that only he knows, he did not report it, and he and his team were able to determine that it was a false alarm. Basically, the system misunderstood some reflections, the sun's reflection, off of clouds as missiles, which you think they would have designed for. You think? Holy cow! But he made a judgment from the seat of his pants that this just didn't seem right, even though the system told him that this was a high-reliability nuclear attack. Congress later did a report that determined if there were to be a nuclear confrontation like this between the Soviet Union and the U.S., that between 35 to 70 percent, 77 percent of the U.S. population would be wiped out. So one third to more than two thirds of the population. This guy, he's got big ones. Can you imagine having to make that decision? You make the right one, but no one knows the guy, at least in the U.S. I would raise a toast to him out of Stochnaya and say congratulations and thank you because I'm here. I mean, it's easy to look at it now and go, wow, that that guy did good. But can you imagine living through that moment? So whether you drink vodka or not, I think the next time any one of us or our listeners has a drink, whether it's alcohol or not, we should absolutely raise a glass and toast the courage and acumen of one Stanislav Petrov, because he probably saved our lives and those of our families. Yeah. Well, thank you to him. That's a pisser though, isn't it? All right. So we're learning unsung heroes. We're learning. We're Many learning. of them. You know what? We're learning, Kurt, and it doesn't even hurt that much. Nope. Nope. All right. I'll give you a quick one. This one will appeal to you and your attitude and interest in the high arts. Go. This is a person you will know, but I suspect many people do not. Antonio Salieri. Oh, yes. <laughs> this man actually trained Beethoven and Schubert who are, of course, incredibly well-known, but very few people know Salieri. And I think the only reason I know him is because of the movie Amadeus. Exactly. I mean, he trained Beethoven and Schubert. I actually know him from the play Amadeus, which I saw before the movie, yes. Of course, you saw the play first. And would you like to give us a book report or a little bit of a diorama on how the play is different than the movie, the pros and cons? So I'm going to talk to you about Matthew Henson. Matthew Henson was late 19th century, born in D.C. His parents died when he was really young. He was African-American. He set out on his own at the age of 11, became a cabin boy on a freighter. Oh, cabin boy. 
and saw the world. And the captain took him under his, his wing, taught him how to read and write, and was all excited. He comes back. He's working in a store, a pelt store, and he meets Robert Edwin Perry, who, of course, went on to, well, I'll tell you what he did. He was a famous explorer even then, Perry. So he asked Matthew Henson to join him, and he became Henson became Perry's number one trusted assistant, staff member, lieutenant. They went on a lot of things, but Perry got obsessed with being the first person at the North Pole. The two of them tried over and over and over again. Finally, about 1900, they're running out of time because they're getting old. They are going to make it. Henson actually arrived closest to the North Pole first. But Perry then went ahead to plant the flag. He got the credit, not Henson, who was there first. Then on the way back, probably because of this, there was some friction. They fell out. Henson lost his job, started parking automobiles, which there weren't many in New York City at the at time. At the North Pole? No, back in New York City. But he wrote an autobiography. Another biography was written at him. And actually, he did. By the time he died in 1955, he got the Congressional Medal and Presidential Citation and was recognized as a co-founder of the North Pole. But I never heard of him. I heard of Perry. I never heard of him. What's nice is about these stories is that as time goes by, I think in many cases, the truth does come out. And as it should, yes. Now, it's too late to replace Perry as the guy who was the first one to conquest the North Pole. But I do think over time, a lot of these rights have been wrong. What's that expression? The arc of history is... No, long. the arc of the covenant was Raiders of the Lost Ark. But there's something, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Yeah, right. Exactly. Something like that. The kind of thing that you and I should know and not have to wonder if we got it right, because your story reminds me of a more well-known, but still not well-unknown partner to a famous explorer. Sir Edmund Hillary gets all the credit for being the first to summit Everest, but he had a Sherpa named Tenzing Norgay, who was right there with him. And I think without whom, Hillary ain't making it up there. No question. It's just, hey, look, if you're not white and rich and male, history is not going to remember you in the best possible light. And if you are white and rich and male, you have a chance to be remembered by history for things that you don't even deserve credit for. Well, unfortunately, I'll tell you, because we are running out of time, but about a white, wealthy male who didn't get the credit. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a 19th century Hungarian physician. May I blow your mind? Yeah. Honest to goodness. I actually know the story of Semmelweis. So he's not completely forgotten the history. So tell me what it was. I don't want to take away your story, but I'll tell you a postscript to the story that I will endeavor to add value to your story. He's the one that said doctors should wash their hands before they go, especially maternity wards, but everywhere. He was ridiculed, put into an asylum where he was, and he died. Yes, he, before he realized that doctors could actually spread germs and infection in their surgical patients, they didn't wash their hands and they didn't wear gloves. So they would spread disease and it would lead to unfortunate death. And I think at the time, doctors were, surgeons in particular, were they were these godlike creatures and they could do no wrong. And it just seemed impossible that they could be the source of the infection. Right. What's amazing is he did realize that doctors needed to wash their hands and wear gloves, and he was tossed out of the profession. But it took more than 50 years, this is the aforementioned postscript, 
it took more than 50 years for doctors, once confronted with this, to actually get religion and start to change their behavior. It was well into the early 1900s that they actually started wearing gloves. What's amazing is they compared the amount of, especially in maternity wards, the amount of infant deaths to either the mother or the child to the doctors and hospitals and midwives. And midwives were far less fatal because they were washing their hands. Yeah, they weren't arrogant. All right, we're running out of time. So you need to give me one more person. One more, but I just, I think it's a really interesting example of how long it takes humans to change their norms, to change their behaviors for all sorts of reasons of human failing or human shortcoming. But 50 years, man. All right, I'm going to continue with our theme of women, people of color being screwed out of their rightful place in history. I think everybody knows that Watson and Crick are given credit for discovering the structure of DNA, specifically the double helix, and even won the the Nobel Prize for it. Yeah, in Cambridge University. The crappy part is there was a woman named Rosalind Franklin, who was a British biophysicist, who had taken some x-ray photographs that actually showed in a molecule the double helix structure of DNA. So she showed that the DNA was actually made up of two commingled or intertwined strands, basically wrapped around each other in double helix. Her work was fundamental to the discovery of the underlying structure of DNA, and she's been written out of history. Yeah, it's not Watson and Crick and Rosemary. Yeah, it's just really, really crappy. So I hope, even though we have not been as pithy and playful as we normally try to be on Smart Dribble. Anyway, you're right. This was less dribbly, but I really learned a lot. And it was fun to look into the shadows of history where people who made bona fide, important, historical, critical human race-altering contributions and discoveries can get a little bit of their due. And in all cases, we're basically hosed out of for all sorts of unfortunate reasons. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.